Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. How we doing? Good, good. Hey, um, before I'm going to introduce our preachers for today, but before I do that, we got a couple of holidays that our country is celebrating. Just want to acknowledge them. So first, happy Father's Day to all the dads uh, at our church. Go ahead, give it up for our dads. That's right. Yes. That's right. Our, uh, our preachers are going to talk more to you in a second. Secondly, let me say happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. Yeah. If you're, um, if you're a little bit like, what is that? Um, Juneteenth, the name given to June 19th, which is the annual celebration of the day in 1865, where the slaves in Galveston, Texas, were finally pronounced free, marking the end of Slavery. You see, freedom in our nation was definitely a process. It took 90 years and two wars in order for everybody to be free. You got July 4th when we declared our independence, and then June 19th when freedom was granted to all people. So if you celebrate July 4th, I'd encourage you to celebrate June 19th. Now, I thought this week would be good for me to briefly bring up why do we bring up holidays in church? Like, why do we bring up Father's Day, Mother's Day? July 4th, June 19th was because God's people are people of all peoples, right? So we reflect the kingdom of heaven as different tribes and tongues gather together. And it's learning and acknowledging the history of brothers and sisters from different tribes, be the language of the Bible, is just an act of brotherly love. And as God's people, we're always looking for a way to point people to the kingdom of heaven. So this weekend, there's just a couple of opportunities built in as we celebrate dads. What are we doing? We're pointing to our heavenly fathers. Whether you had a good dad, bad dad here on earth, he was just meant to be a signpost of the one true and good love of the heavenly father for you. Same thing true with Juneteenth. As it relates to this, the church says, hey, freedom in this life is good, but God doesn't promise it in this life. And his people have not always experienced such freedom. But scripture says Christ has won a more important freedom for us a freedom his people have, even if they're enslaved or persecuted, even if they're struck down, treated harshly their whole lives, Christ has won an eternal freedom for his people, freedom from slavery to sin and freedom from eternal death. And that freedom is what we lift high and exalt in the church. That freedom creates a hope that has carried God's people through his, through their darkest days. That's what we do, y'all. As citizens of heaven placed here on earth. We look for whatever's going on here on earth as a way to point people back to the kingdom of heaven. And this weekend presents a great opportunity for that. So I hope you'll celebrate freedom in Christ uh, this weekend. Now, let me introduce our two preachers for us this morning uh, at our Northeast campus. Uh, the venerable Dr. Reverend Richard Barnes is going to be preaching for you guys there at Northeast and at Providence Road. Uh, the man, just the man, the myth, the legend, Pastor Josh Jones is going to be preaching here. Now, 
Both of these guys um, have something in common. It's pretty powerful. Both of them have roots in the state of Texas, and both of them have lived every Texan's dream by leaving that state and moving to North Carolina. So we, um, that's right. That's right. We're so excited to have both of them, not only in our state, of course, but on our church staff. These are two um, really two great dads. I admire the way that they lead their homes, lead their children, and the way that they shepherd you, Mercy Church. So at both of our campuses, will you join me in welcoming Richard Barnes and Josh Jones to come bring God's word to us this morning. Thanks, dude. All right. Well, I did make it to North Carolina. So thank you for, for letting us Texans in. And I don't have any intentions of going back. Mom and dad, I love you guys. We'll see you on the holidays. Um, good morning. And I'm so glad that you guys are here. And if this is your first time with us, I just want to do, just want to introduce myself. I'm Josh Jones. I get to serve here as a community life pastor. And I know churches a lot of times have all these titles and you go, I don't really know what that is. And so just real quickly, what that means for me here is that I get to help oversee what we do with community groups, equip our student ministry, member care, things like that. So if you have questions about wanting to get connected to a group or, or anything like that, I'd love to help you or connect you to somebody who can and and, and it has been such a gift for me and my family to be here. We've loved being at Mercy and I love my job, but one of the things that I love most, even more than that, is getting to be a husband and a dad, right? And so I know we've got a lot of dads in here. And so I want to say happy Father's Day to you guys. And I just want you guys to hear um, that your role is invaluable to your family, right? The opportunity that God has given you, the role he's placed you in to model before your children, to pour, before your family, what it looks like to follow Jesus is an incredible weight, right? It's a significant responsibility and one that you can't do alone. I mean, the reality is, is that we're like Paul. If you guys recall in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. A lot of times um, we might think, oh, that sounds really arrogant to say that. But the reality is, is as people find out that we follow Jesus, they start to look to us to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. So your kids are looking to you to learn what does it mean to trust God when things get difficult? What does it mean to give our lives first to him? What does it look like? How does it look to love a wife? What does it look like to raise children? They're looking to you for those things. And you can't do those things apart from a, an abiding relationship in Christ. So if you can hear anything this morning, it's that it is continue to find your rest and your strength and your peace in Jesus Christ and he will sustain you. Um, but as we get ready to jump in, I, I want to acknowledge that the weight of some of the things we're going to talk about is pretty heavy this morning. So if you have children with you that are elementary aged, um, it, it, this could be a good time to check them into ki the kid's classroom. Um, you don't have to, um, but we're going to talk about some heavy topics. And you can at any point in the service if you feel like that's a decision you'd like to make. If you've got middle school or high school kids that are in here and you feel like the weight might be a little bit too heavy for them, um, we've got in our HQ, Blake is back this way. They can walk back there, find him. It's just in a room on the other side of the hallway. Um, but we're going to be talking about sexual abuse again this week. Um, so it's a pretty heavy, weighty topic um, that I think is important for us to hear. Um, and so I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. And if you want to use that time, you can to step out um, and then we'll, we'll continue our time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful um, just for this moment, for this morning. 
God, where we can gather as the body of Christ and we can come and we can sit under you. God, we can hear from your word. And God, we pray that you would just teach us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would communicate to our hearts, God, and that you would draw us close to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned over the past several weeks, um, we've been working our way through First and Second Samuel. And we've been watching David, David's journey to becoming king of Israel. In almost every way, he's been this exemplary model for us of what it looks like to live courageously and dependent upon God. But last week, it took a turn, right? We saw David, David's abuse of power as king. And he became an example for us of what happens when we allow our hearts to drift away from God, right? to pursue our own selfish desires. And he models for us the opposite of what God intended when he placed man on earth to care for his creation, right? When God first made humans, their job was to care for and help all of creation flourish. But ever since the moment sin entered the world, we see this continual unraveling, right, of what God intended when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And we saw it last week with David's sinful treatment of Bathsheba and Uriah, his sin against them, right? David was given authority and power to help the people of God flourish, but he abused his power and he took from Bathsheba and Uriah instead of giving to them, right? And this is what happens when power is abused, right? When power is abused, it's used for selfish gain and it takes from people. But power, right, when it's used correctly and submitted to the will of God is used to give life and it promotes the flourishing of people in the world, right? It's, it's this contrast between taking and giving that we'll see continue to play out over the course of this next chapter. And in this chapter, we're going to see four men whose hearts drift away from allegiance to God. And they're going to drift towards themselves and to pursue their own self-interests, right? Rather than trusting God, they're going to turn inward and look to themselves to become the master of their own fate. And what we know from scripture and what we know from history is that we always eventually reap what we sow, right? We harvest what we plant. And it shouldn't surprise us, but it always seems to, right? Whenever we allow our hearts to drift in allegiance from God, we begin to operate as though our preferences should rule the day, right? That, that we alone are the final authority on what is good and right. And then as we saw so clearly last week, we saw the rippling effects of this kind of mindset begin to not only hurt David's life, but it began to hurt the lives of those around him. When we allow our hearts to drift and we choose sin over over God, it not only hurts our life, but it begins to hurt the lives of those around us. So this week, our passage, again, it covers some heavy things. And it's going to go into a lot of detail and it might feel kind of like, I don't know if you've ever turned on a Netflix movie or on Amazon Prime or something and you started watching something that you didn't know. And then all of a sudden it, it takes this crazy turn. Like it's this wild turn. You're going, I don't know what this is. It's time to shut it off, right? This isn't what I thought we were getting into. You turn it off. And as at, at times as we read through this, you might want to close the book. You go, this is too much. This is too hard to look at. And you might start to ask the question, like why? Like why would God put this here? Why does he record this stuff? Or why so much detail? Wouldn't it be better to just skip over it? But if it's true, right, that all scripture has been breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, I right, think God has good for us in this passage. 
and we need to listen. My hope is, is that as we watch the destruction that unfolds in this chapter, we'll be moved to take seriously the counsel that we see in Psalm 1, right? That we would be people who surround ourselves with godly counsel, right? That we would delight in the word of God and that we would meditate on it day and night, right? Jesus reiterates these truths to us in John 15 when he says, I am the vine, right? You are the branches, The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing apart from me, right? When we abide in Christ, we live fruit-bearing lives that give life and flourishing to others. But when we don't, we live lives that take from others. So let's look at 2 Samuel 13 and verse one. It says, some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. All right, so right here we see that there's some time that's happened. Some time has passed. Some time has passed from David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Some time has passed since Israel has has defeated the Ammonites. And here we are now looking back again into the household of David. And we're introduced to a couple different characters, some people that we need to take note of. The first one is Absalom. Absalom is David's son from his wife, Makkah, from David's wife, Makkah. Makkah is David's fourth wife, and Absalom is David's, uh, is, is David's son who's second in line to the throne. That's important to note. He's the second in line to the throne. Tamar is Absalom's sister, and she shares the same mom as Absalom, right? So same dad, same mom. Amnon is David's son, but he's born to David's second wife, Ahinoam, right? And he is currently next in line to the throne. That's also important to know. Amnon is the half-brother to Absalom and Tamar, right? The chapter goes on to show us, show us, continue to show us the rippling effects of David's sin. And in verse two, it says this, it says, Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, a son of David's brother, Shemaiah. Right, so here's another character, Jonadab. And he's not just a friend, he's a cousin. Right, and as we keep reading, we're gonna find out that Jonadab is not much of a friend at all. Right, verse three continues. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he asked Amnon, why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare a meal in my presence so I can watch and eat from her hand. So Jonadab, Amnon's cousin, right, is described to be shrewd. Right? He's described to have a sort of wisdom, but his wisdom's not a godly wisdom. Right? His wisdom is in the way of evil as described in James chapter three. James writes about it this way. He says, but if you have bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there's disorder in every evil practice, right? You could circle selfish ambition in there, right? The wisdom from Jonadab is earthly wisdom. It's not wisdom that comes from God. It's rooted in selfish ambition. And Jonadab is going to use his wisdom and craftiness to hatch a plan that's really for his own selfish gain, right? And Amnon is going to listen. He's going to listen because his plan actually works into Absalom's favor. 
And when we come across things like this in scripture, like this chapter, we've got a couple options. One, we can be passive bystanders and watch it unfold and flip over to the next chapter and verse. Or two, we can listen close, right? We can hear what God is speaking to us through these events. And so I pray for us that we would listen. And in verse six, it goes on. It says, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so I can eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Then Tamar went to his house. While Amnon was lying down, she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his presence and baked them. She brought the pan and set it down in front of him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, everyone leave me. And everyone left him. Bring, bring the meal to the bedroom, Amnon told Tamar, so I can eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. When she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, my sister. This is a really elaborate explanation, right? This was intentional plotting and planning on Amnon's part to willfully choose to sin. And it's a graphic picture of what happens when selfish pleasure and not the worship of God rules our lives. This was a war for worship happening in Amnon's heart. And Amnon gave his worship to his pleasure. And we see it play out before us in our eyes and it makes our stomachs churn and it should because it's wicked and evil in every sense of the word. And Tamar cries out, she says, don't my brother, don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't commit this outrage. Where could I ever go with my humiliation? And you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So please speak to the king for he won't keep me from you. So with everything that's in her, Tamar pleads with Amnon to stop. The act would not only humiliate Tamar, but it would make Amnon a fool. And, and we translate that word from, into English as fool, but it, it really, it means this, this wicked folly, this wicked foolishness. All right, it's a word used to describe the outrageous, the outrageous offense. And that's exactly what it was. It was an outrageous offense towards Tamar. And Absalom and Amnon refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced her by raping her. He robs her of her dignity, silences her voice. And to make a terrible situation even more terrible, his lust turns to hatred and he demands she leave after he's had his way with her. This is how sin works, right? It promises us things it can never deliver on. It promises us life, but leaves us with death. And this is the lie of every temptation, right? The lie is that it's good for you and not harmful to others. And it will lure you in until it takes your life and the lives of those around you. We can't worship pleasure in God, right? We must choose one or the other. And if you choose selfish pleasure, it will lead to your destruction. So in verse 15 says, so Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love he had loved her with. It wasn't love at all. Get out of here, he said. No, she cried. Sending me away is much worse than the great wrong you've already done to me. Again, Amnon refuses to listen to her. He calls his servants and he says, get this away from me. 
He reduces her to an object, refusing to call her by name. Throw her out and bolt the door behind her. Amnon abused her physically. He abused her verbally. He failed to treat her as the image bearer of God that she is. And next we read that Tamar runs out of the room. Right? In her mourning and her grief, she tears her clothes and puts ashes on her head, crying out, desperately hoping for somebody to hear her and see her. And she runs into her brother Absalom. And he asks her this. He says, has your brother Amnon been with you? And listen to his response. He says, be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And then it says, Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. Don't take this thing to heart. Like, how could you not take this to heart? Right? And again, it feels as though her voice is being silenced. Her brother takes her in, but he's so consumed. He's going to be so consumed. We'll find out with his hatred and, and rage and anger and plotting that he tells his sister to be quiet, to move past it. He essentially tells her to stuff it. Church, if you have suffered rape or if you have been sexually abused in any way, God does not ask you to stuff it and to get over it. God wants to both hear you and heal the wound that has been inflicted upon you. And when we, and we as your church, we want to come alongside you and we want to help you. We don't want you to sit in this alone. Right? What Amnon did to Tamar is wicked in every sense of the word. Amnon as her brother should have been someone Tamar could trust. He should have been someone looking out for her well-being, looking out for her flourishing. Instead, he became ruled by his passions and his lust and became consumed by his own fantasy that told him that if he could only have Tamar, then he would be satisfied, then he would be happy. And the problem with fantasy is that it's never real, right? When I say fantasy, I'm not talking about hopes and dreams. We all have hopes and dreams and sometimes they're realized and we can celebrate them and sometimes they're not and we adjust and we keep moving. But fantasy is different, right? It, it's gripping, it consumes us. And when we embrace it, it's never real, but the consequences of our trying to embrace it are often very real, right? Amnon's actions have consequences. So in verse 20, right, it shares some of those consequences that Tamar endured. It described her as living out her days in her brother's house as a desolate woman, right? This word is used to describe those who are destroyed by their enemies, others have suggested that it implies that she lived out the remaining of her days as a living death. This poor girl is an undeserving casualty in Amnon's selfish pursuit of pleasure. Right? If you're a victim of sexual abuse, I want you to hear a couple of things. One, you're not to blame. Right? Regardless of the circumstances leading up to the incident, no one should be treated this way. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to surrender your voice to the thought of, well, if I hadn't have done X, Y, or Z, then I wouldn't have been in this situation. Or it must be my fault. Or I must share in the fault. No, like it is not your fault. Two, God will fight for your justice. God sees you. He cares for you. He hears you. He will be your defender and your protector. In Ezekiel 34, um, we see really the, the shrapnel from all these terrible shepherds and pastors like who are not caring for the flock. And God describes himself as the good shepherd. And this is how he describes himself. He says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. 
I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd them with justice. Right? This is how God fights for you. He sees all of his sheep. He sees you. He will bandage the wounds others have inflicted upon you. He will strengthen you. He will bring about justice in its time. And third, when he hears that, we want to come alongside you as your church. We want to be an expression of God's love and presence to you. And if we're going to have pastoral ministerial staff here available afterwards, if, if we can pray with you, we would love to. If we can get you connected to a counselor, we'd love to connect you to a counselor to continue helping you process through some of these things. And if you don't feel comfortable speaking with anybody, we understand you can email us at membercare at mercycharlotte.com or go to the member care page on our website and get connected to somebody. We want to help you. And one of the things that we know, one of the things that we know about Jesus is that in his humanity, he suffered everything we've suffered, right? So to those who have suffered abuse, he can sit with you because he too was abused. Right? To those who have experienced betrayal, he can sit with you because he too was betrayed by one of his closest disciples. To those who feel silenced and unheard, Jesus' words fell on so many deaf ears and still continue to fall on deaf ears. He can sit with you. There are so many places, there are multiple places in the scriptures um, where there's just not a real pretty conclusion. Right? This chapter is one of them. Um, another one is Psalm 88. Um, at the end of the psalm, um, the psalmist finishes by saying, darkness is my only friend. Right? Could you imagine being in a spot, maybe you can, where you conclude and you say, darkness is my only friend. That's the only conclusion you can come to. And again, you go, why, why is this here? And what should we conclude about this? Does this mean that God is absent? And I think the opposite is actually true. This is why God includes it in the scripture is to show us that he sees us and he's not absent at all, but that he's actually very present. And because he's present, he's the only source. He's the source of our greatest help. So we still have some more characters to work through. We've got another half of the chapter. So let's jump back into verse 21. It says, when King David heard about all these things, he was furious. And that's it, right? When he heard about what happened to Tamar, he was furious. And it says nothing more. He was angered by the actions of Amnon. I'm sure he was grieved by Tamar's suffering, but he did nothing to comfort Tamar. He did nothing to discipline Amnon. He became furious, but remained passive in his anger. And maybe he felt inadequate. Maybe he felt unworthy to step into this conflict because of his own public failings, right? Because of that, maybe it caused him to, to fail, to, to trust, to step into the responsibility that God had set before him. He failed to lead and care for his family, right? When we fail to step into the responsibilities in a way that's dependent upon God, to step into the things that he's given us, we can know that someone or something will step in and take over. And it will not be better than if we had stepped in in faith. Right? Tamar needed her dad. He needed, she needed her dad to see her. She needed her dad to call out Amnon's actions as wicked and to execute justice. Right? But rather than step in to use his power and influence to give life to Tamar, he stepped away from Tamar in passivity. So who stepped in? Absalom did. 
The text says that for two years, Absalom stewed with hatred for what happened to his sister. And he eventually comes up with this plan to take vengeance upon Amnon. He, He had a lot of sheep. His brothers had a lot of sheep. And if you know much or not very much at all about sheep, which I know nothing, I do know that you have to cut their hair every once in a while. So he decides to have a sheep shearing party. And so he's got this great plan. Hey, I'm going to bring all my brothers in. We're going to have a sheep shearing party. We're going to cut their hair. And I'm going to use that as a setup to kill my brother Amnon. And so he goes back and forth with, his, with, with King David about getting his brothers down there. And eventually they come down. Um, and at night they're, they're eating and they're drinking wine. And, and he waits until Amnon's had too much wine to drink. And he tells his, brother, his, his servants, this is the time, go kill Amnon. And so they kill Amnon. His plan works. Amnon dies. And word gets back to the king that all of his sons are dead. Right? So he starts grieving and mourning, thinking that all his sons are dead. But then all of a sudden, Jonadab shows back up and he says, no, no, no. Let me clarify, king. In verse 32, he says, my Lord must not think that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, because only Amnon is dead. In fact, Absalom has planned this ever since the day Amnon disgraced his sister Tamar. So now, my Lord, the king, don't take seriously the report that says all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. And it just kind of leaves you scratching your head, right? Thinking like, Jonadab, you sneaky snake. Or like, how did you, how did you know this? And if you knew this, you just kept it to yourself. Like the depth of the corruption and, and just conniving of nature of Jonadab, right? First his counsel to Amnon to, sell all, to set all this in motion. And, and now he seems aware, maybe it even involved in Absalom's plan. Right? Over and over, we see that when people's hearts drift away from God, they make decisions out of their own self-interest rather than the interest of God and others. And if Absalom was worried about justice for Tamar, like if that was his biggest concern, there were other ways he could have gone about holding his brother accountable. Right? Amnon was guilty under the Old Testament law. Right? It was illegal and known to be immoral to marry your father's daughter, not to mention forcing himself upon her. Right? Justice should not have been hard for Absalom to carry out if that was his main concern. Absalom's concern, however, turned to, out to be selfish. His concern, I think, was more about becoming next in line to be king than anything else. And if you were to continue reading on through 2 Samuel, we'll see how that plays out. Listen, as we consider the actions of these men, we see that there's a battle going on for their hearts. Right? There's a battle that exists in our hearts too. Right? Who or what will we give our worship to? Will we give it to God? and use our lives to serve him and be a blessing to others? Will we give our worship to something else, to serve our own passions, to serve our own desires, our own self-interests, our own conveniences? When our hearts drift away from God, when we begin to serve created things rather than the creator, we end up using our positions of influence. We all have them. We use our positions of influence to take from others rather than to give to the flourishing of others. Amnon took from Tamar when he became consumed with lust and raped her. When we're consumed by lust, whether that's sexual desire or desire for material possessions, comfort, pleasure, status, right? It's evidence, it's proof that our hearts have drifted from God and and we are now consumed with our own self-interest and desires. And, And James talks about this also in James chapter one. He says, 
but each person is tempted when he's drawn away first, when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You see that progression? We must guard our hearts and our lives against this, against the pursuit of our lusts and passions. Jonadab, right? He's the sneaky snake. He took from his family when he used earthly wisdom to secure his own position of power in the kingdom, right? Playing David's house against itself rather than using his position he had to help David's kingdom flourish, he contributed to its near destruction. Wisdom that's not from God will always lead to destruction, not to human flourishing. Solomon writes about this in the Proverbs. He's comparing about wisdom that comes from the world versus wisdom that comes from God. And in Proverbs 1, verses 31 through 33, he writes this. They, talking about the people who who seek wisdom from the world, they will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. For the apostasy of the inexperienced will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and be undisturbed by the dread of danger. David was furious and passive. He took from Tamar and his children children through his unwillingness to step in and lead, protect, and care, which led to the near loss of his kingdom. His passivity didn't protect like he may have been tempted to believe. It left people vulnerable to hurt and death. Tamar did not feel protected by her father. She didn't feel cared for. She didn't feel valued. And because of David's passivity, Absalom took matters into his own hands and killed his brother Amnon. Passivity lures people in with the promise of peace, but it always leaves destruction in its wake. Absalom, he took from Amnon. He took from Tamar and David when he became consumed and ruled by unrestrained hatred and anger. He took justice into his own hands and he used his hatred for his own selfish end, right? We will find out later that it's about the throne for Absalom, right? He wants to be king of Israel. These four men were each put in a position where they could have used their power and influence in a way that honored God and blessed those around them. They, however, out of, selfish, out of selfishness and greed, used their power and influence to take from people rather than to give to them, right? So we find ourselves at the end of this chapter and it's dark. And one of the things we learn about God as we read passages like this one is that God is honest about the way that the world is and the way that the world isn't, right? He's not some sneaky salesman who's trying to sell us on something that isn't real. He's actually incredibly honest, right? And the world we live in is devastatingly broken, right? We have to stop looking for the world to give us what can only come from God, because you will never find your savior in the created things of this world. But the good news of the gospel is that there's a savior who entered into our broken world, right? He suffered at the hands of his creation in order to redeem them. He entered into this world to redeem you and to redeem me. And it's the savior who comforts us in our brokenness, right? He meets us in our darkest moments and he gives us the life and light that we need. The scriptures teach us all throughout that we live between two worlds, right? The already and the not yet. And what I mean is that there's a sense in which God is making things new right now, right? When you 
turn from your sin and you come to faith in Christ, the scriptures say that you're a new creation, creating Christ Jesus. But the reality is, is as you live here on earth, you still battle and fight and deal with sin, but a day is coming, right? Just as Jesus came once to rescue us from sin, he's coming back to do away with sin and brokenness for good. The already and the not yet. And the only way that I can think of for us to respond to a passage like this is for us to pray and for us to sing. All right, first we're gonna pray. We're gonna spend some time in prayer. And some of you, as we went through this passage, maybe you found yourself identifying with Absalom or with David or Amnon. And there's some things that you need to be repenting of. Right? It is never in our interest to hide and conceal sin. It will eat you alive from the inside out. Some of you, as we read through this passage, found yourself connecting and identifying with Tamar. What I want you to hear is that God is present. God sees you. He loves you. And he is your comforter. And he will restore you. He will heal the wounds that others have inflicted upon you. And I hope that you will find your peace and your rest in him. He will bring healing to your soul. And in a little bit, we're going to sing a song called More Like My Messiah. And some of the lyrics that I want us to take note of and pay attention to are this. The old is gone. The new has come. It says, I'm forever changed. That is the reality of the gospel. That's the gospel reality right there, that Jesus comes in and he forever changes us. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is changing my desires. And it goes on. It says, my God is full of truth. With every word he speaks, he says, the dark will lose. The dark will lose. Sin does not get the last word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the promise of the presence of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Because sometimes the weight of sin and life and darkness feels so strong, God, we can feel alone. But God, we know that we're not alone. God, that you have sent your spirit to live amongst us. God, you have sent your son to come into this broken world to redeem it and to make it new again. And one day it will all be made new. It's the glorious hope that we have and that we trust in. So God, I pray that you'd help our hearts to rest in those realities this morning. God, to worship you as the God who comes and takes broken things and makes them whole. God, you take dead things and you give them life. That's what you do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.